This is Brian Croft. Welcome to another edition of Trench Talk, the podcast of Practical Shepherding. I'm joined, as always, with Jim Sebastio and a special guest, Jim, who we'll, interview, or we'll introduce an interview in a moment. But before we do that, you can go to practicalshepherding.com and you can access all of our resources there. Uh, you can write us. You can go to the contact page and write us if there's a way we can be helpful to you. Come stay at the Shepherd's House for free, two days, two nights, other podcast episodes, books, Everything you're looking for in regard to practical ministry, come find us and uh, let us know how we can be uh, a help to you. But we want to dive right in, and uh, we're grateful that we, Jim and I have a, a good friend here with us, and we wanted to take advantage of having him around. Um, before he gets on a plane, he's been doing a, a weekend of ministry with Jim and, and his church. And so uh, Robert Briggs, Pastor Robert Briggs, is here with us. So Rob, good to have you, man. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks, Brian, for the invitation. It's really been a, a wonderful time for my wife and I here in Kentucky, and uh, we really have enjoyed our time with the Lord's people. It's great. So we're going to um, we're going to dive right in. We because we want to we want to just take advantage. You you're kind of fun to be around, Rob. We enjoyed our friendship with you, and but the other thing that we want to highlight is. How many years of pastoral ministry now is under your belt? Just past 31 years. 31 years. Yeah. Okay. So we assumed you'd maybe have a thing or two to talk about <laughs> in regard to the things we talk about on here. So uh, so we want to jump right in. We want to basically want to talk about life and ministry with our, with our good friend here and trusting that uh, it'll be a help to you because I speak for Jim and myself that we were just grateful for Rob and his ministry. He's had a big impact in his pastoral ministry and also outside of that, training other pastors and investing in other uh, other men who are in ministry. Um, but there's a lot of wisdom there we want to try to, to pull from from Rob a little bit from this. So, so Jim, where do we want to start? There's so many places we could go with him. Where do we want to start? Well, Briggsy, why don't we start at the beginning and uh, just share a little bit about your your background. I think people will be able to hear that you're uh, not an American, uh, and share just a bit about uh, how you came to faith uh, and uh, how you wound up uh, in ministry, if you can just try sure. to do a, a pretty quick thumbnail on those things. Well, yeah, it's true that as soon as I open my mouth, uh, anybody who hears me knows I'm not from California originally. You're uh, not, really? I'm Scottish. Uh, yeah, I was born in the city of Glasgow in uh, 1967, so that puts me at 56 years of age. Uh, 67 is a vintage year as far as I'm concerned. Apparently, Gavin Newsom was also born in 67. Yeah. I don't know how we would parallel that, but maybe I'll get a chance to have a coffee with him sometime. We can talk about it. But I was born into a Christian home. My parents were members of Harper Memorial Baptist Church in Glasgow. Uh, and uh, my father was a deacon there for 11 years and uh, they were 11 years married before I was born and then the Lord blessed them incredibly by giving them me and uh, then I have a brother uh, who's three and a half years younger than me he's also a Christian, praise God and is a, an elder in Musselboro Baptist Church on the east side of Edinburgh uh, I grew up therefore in a Christian home never remember a time where I wasn't aware that the Bible was the word of God the gospel is the saving message of salvation and uh, that I needed to become a, a Christian um, I believe that the Lord saved me probably when I was nine or ten years old um, I definitely remember having a conscious awareness of my own sinfulness, uh, the fact that only Jesus Christ could save from sin, and I remember in a very childlike manner uh, trusting Christ. Uh, I remember telling my mother that I believed I'd become a Christian at one particular Lord's Day. Of course, when you're that age, you don't know an awful lot. Uh, it takes time for you to therefore understand uh, much, much more of what it means to be in Christ. By the time I got to 17, I had left high school, was interested in theology, 
uh, came under the ministry of John Shearer in Musselboro Baptist Church. John discipled me for three or four years. And during that period between sort of 17 and 21, I had a sense of call that John nurtured and uh, encouraged and developed. And I'm very thankful for that. I look back on those uh, years believing that God, by his grace, uh, did confirm uh, that the Lord was calling me to, to gospel ministry. And I ended up in the Faith Mission Bible College in Edinburgh uh, for a year. Uh, it was a, an interesting college in the sense that it was a very Arminian holiness college, and yet there were a lot of good godly people there, made some good friends that I still have today. But the biggest blessing I received there was the fact that's where I met my wife, Elaine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to Queen's University in Belfast um, right after that, uh, did my Bachelor of Divinity there. Uh, through the Irish Baptist College uh, and ended up in pastoral ministry at the ripe old age of 25. Uh, <laughs> that's essentially a thumbnail sketch of my earlier years. Yes, great. What, what, was, the, what was your first ministry post? My first ministry post was an Irish Baptist church, uh, Macrofelt Baptist Church. Uh, I lasted about three and a half years there. Brian made a lot of mistakes as well, but uh, also recognized that to go into a church without a constitution or without a confession of faith is not a wise decision to make. Mm. But I didn't realize that when I was 25. And then we planted uh, the Reformed Baptist Church of Macrofelt uh, when I was about 28 and a half. And we made sure we had a constitution and a confession. Um, we had nine happy years there. Um, and then that brought me ultimately to California, where I've been for almost or just over 20 or just coming up to 20 actually at the end of this year now before you go back to let's go back for a minute that first the three and a half years were you run out of that church did you just leave it and go to the next post well that's a great question did i did i jump or was i pushed that's a good question <laughs> uh i i taught through the confession the 1689 confession i tried to bring in a constitution the church voted it in and then six weeks later there was a petition was gathered, uh, about one-third of the church didn't want it. I realized that I probably had about two-thirds of the church support, but I wasn't 100% sure. I concluded that it was better to resign and leave the church than have a bloodbath in a members meeting, mm-hmm. um, essentially. And so I, I actually resigned. Uh, I can remember resigning November uh, the 5th, 1995, uh, the reason I remember that is because my wife, Elaine, was heavily pregnant at that time with Esther, our number two. She would be born on the 20th of November. Um, but uh, yeah, I conscientiously decided to let the church uh, make its own direction. Um, they didn't have a pastor for 10 years after that in that congregation. The Lord has blessed the church now and they're doing well and we bless God for that. But yeah, I would say, I, I resigned Brian out of principle. Um, they didn't want the direction I was taking the church. And so I decided it was wiser and better just to step away. Now, as you entered into the ministry, would you say what was most helpful to prepare you to be a pastor? Was it the mentoring you received? Was it the training at the Irish Baptist College where you went? Could you elaborate a little bit more on just ministry preparation and training? Yeah, I think the Irish Baptist College was a wonderful experience. I'm very thankful for that. They do definitely have a kind of intern discipleship program. I spent nine happy months in my first or second year working in Bangor at Ballycrock and Baptist, where Neil Watson, one of my best friends, is now the pastor, and I was Neil's best man. We went through the college together. I had a great experience there. I think the college did a decent job. I think what I would say, and I did tell this to some of the older pastors, after I, a number of years later, I said it would be good 
for younger men to have older men for a, a set period of time to give them guidance and direction. Uh, sometimes about the speed that you go at in trying to change things and sometimes simply what would be a wise fit for you in terms of pastoral mm-hmm. ministry. But uh, I think also I would say this, uh, you'll smile at this one, but uh, one of the things I also did, I had met uh, Pastor Albert N. Martin in 1987-88 at a youth conference at Leicester, uh, got exposed to his ministry, found out he had a pastoral theology course, and I bought as many of the cassettes as I could buy back in the day, cassettes for you young Guys can Google that. Yeah, yeah, you can Google that, little tapes. Uh, I know you don't get them anymore, but... Uh, and, and so what I used to do when I was actually in the Baptist College in the evenings, because I was single at that time, I would listen to the pastoral theology uh, course and take my own notes and really in many ways was developing my understanding of pastoral ministry through that. Um, then my wife and I spent our honeymoon uh, in Montville uh, in New Jersey and they were very generous and kind to us and we bless God for that experience um, because I wanted to see if the preaching I was listening to and the cassettes that I had really were fleshed out in the life of a church because yeah. I hadn't seen that mm. um, and the Lord used that in my life I think Brian in my formative years uh, notwithstanding maybe the, the haste with which I moved at times as a young man that I would certainly say don't do that uh, at this stage in my life um, the Lord used all of that to shape my understanding of the, the, the primacy of preaching, the importance of pastoral care, uh, and, and really the, the importance of you know, your own walk with God uh, as, as a man of God. That's good. Yeah. Robert, may you share a little bit about uh, your transition from Magrafelt to Sacramento and what made you think that it was imagine you must have wrestled with this uh you 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 were there you were sole elder there i believe and 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 they would not have another elder for some time and made you think you know i think i ought to leave i i can leave and i ought to leave Uh, what was going on in your own heart and ministry that led to that transition so Actually, I didn't leave it without an elder. What happened was uh, a young man called Paul Wallace um, was the, one of the young men in the church that had a, a sense of call for ministry. Okay. And so we worked together. And for six months, we were actually joint elders before I left. Because I, I wouldn't have actually left the church without a pastor. Okay. Uh, that well, was, that, that was a, that, I, I wasn't sure. That was that. a key issue for me, Jim. And so the reason why I say that is because for from about 2000 to about 2003, I'd been approached by f- three or four churches, one in Glasgow when Bill Hughes left, uh, one in Rugby in England, then Akron, Ohio, church plant. Um, all of those I investigated, but because we didn't have a full-time elder to replace me, plus I wasn't convinced those were the places the Lord was opening doors, I would not leave the congregation. Um, the reason I ended up in Sacramento uh, as a longer story, there was issues in the church in Sacramento. We had been partnering with the church in Sacramento for several years in church planting in Germany in a place called Wetzlar. So I was known to the Sacramento congregation. They would visit our congregation in Northern Ireland. When the church got into trouble with their pastor being excommunicated, um, a number of other pastors that were helping Emmanuel in Sacramento turned to me Instead, they thought I might be a fit for this as an older guy, more experienced, also knowing the story of Emmanuel uh, as well. And so that's what put it on my desk, as it were, uh, Jim. And I then went round my whole congregation. We weren't a large congregation, about 35, 40 members. I went round everybody in oversight and I, I said to them two things. One, I want you to be ruthlessly honest with me. 
but I want you to be spiritually minded with me uh, regarding whether this is of the Lord, this invitation to mm. go to the States. Mm. Um, and I do believe my people were ruthlessly honest with me, and I do believe they were spiritually minded. One young couple told me I was sinning, leaving the church. They ended up being one of the church couples that actually were first to visit us in Sacramento, but they were honest. But the church were behind. They were supportive of the, me leaving, providing Paul came into full-time ministry. And so that's essentially what happened. Paul took up the full-time pastoral ministry in, Sacra- in Macafell okay. before I left, or just as I left. Um, and then we ended up making the move to California. But the day that I told the church finally what was doing, it was a Sunday, I'll never forget this, I wept continuously. I could not stop weeping. And even when I stood up to tell the church, they knew what I was going to say, I couldn't get it out. And the reason for that, Jim, was because we had gone through a lot together and, and I had, the Lord had been pleased to use me to plant that work. And they, these people were, they'd gone through, you know, a, a lot with me. Um, they were my family. And so I still have a deep, yeah. visceral attachment to those folks. Um, but we were convinced this was the call of God mm. on our life. And so uh, we made the life-changing transition to the west coast of California, you know. <laughs> I want to ask a question here because it's on the mind of everybody. I just sense it. Was there any factor in this decision, knowing you have a leg up on every pastor in America because you're Scottish and sound Scottish? <laughs> so every Scottish preacher has a leg up on every American here. Was that a part? Was that a part of this at all, Rob? No, I, I, I mean my co-pastor Steve Meister teases, teases me. He says if I just stood up and read the phone book, people would keep coming. Um, you know that may be true. Uh, you know Steve's a better preacher than I am, but the reality is, uh, what was key, I think, for us, Brian, a couple of things were key. One was we had had a sense the Lord was loosening us from Northern Ireland through these various approaches over about a two-year period. Though we were very happy, we were also aware that it could be the Lord has something else for us. We weren't 100% sure, of course. And then also, when the Lord opened the door for the opportunity to have a pulpit 10 blocks from the largest, one of the largest economies in the world and the influence for the gospel, knowing also that the church there was in a bit of trouble, um, I was concerned that, okay, this could be of God, that this is what he wants me to do. and uh, the counsel I received from the brothers that I had in my life at that time was to give it serious consideration. Um, so once the lads took me to Lake Tahoe, it was over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Well, that's because that's where Fredo was killed. In the, uh, that's they, were, right. they, they had you out on a boat and had you terrified. <laughs> um, Briggs, you share with us what it's like you mentioned here. You, you, you enter into a church now, a larger church, Northern California, different context, everything else, but it's a church that's been traumatized. And not only was the pastor uh, run out, or I shouldn't use that, you know, was, dis- was, was, excommunicated. was excommunicated, but he'd also had some toxic effect upon the congregation uh, through years of abusive leadership. I think we could, would I be right in saying that? Is that your interpretation? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's no doubt that there were serious, some, serious, some real legalism, yeah. real oh, legalism, yeah. lack yeah. of the gospel. Yeah. So you went into a situation where there was maybe some sound doctrine, but there was also a lot of uh, probably a lot of traumatized right. and confused and right. hurt sheep. What yeah. was your plan going in to bring healing and stability uh, to a situation like that? 
Well, bearing in mind, Jim, it's 20 years ago now. Uh, I mean, I'm, I would say I'm definitely a different man now than I was 20 years ago in a lot of ways. I would say probably sum it up in a couple of things. One, when I went in, I had learned lessons from Northern Ireland that uh, you do nothing fast. <laughs> I learned that one the hard way. Uh, so I, I, I just took a year uh, to listen, go around the congregation, talk to people, and I preached through Romans 1 to 8, and I gave them the gospel. Um, actually, my first series was what men have meant for evil, God has meant for good. Mm. And I really wanted to have a healing impact on the congregation. There were three non-vocational elders in place by the time I got there, good men in many ways, um, but they had gone through the trauma of the, the church, losing its primary elder and all that. Um, and so I would say I just took my time to get to know people, establish credibility, make sure that they knew that I loved them, make sure that I, they knew that I was there to help them. They were very warm, very receiving to us. Uh, in some ways, they had no idea what they were doing, and we had no idea what we were doing, but together, the God gave grace to work through all of that. I would say that uh, the issues of uh, legalism were undoubtedly there, um, and here's how I would describe it now, 20 years under my belt. They had the confession of faith on a piece of paper. They did not understand the depths and the implications and the outworkings of what the confession of faith mm. at 1689 actually teaches. And as a result, uh, there were a lot of differences and a lot of challenges um, that ensued as a result of that. And would you just, for the record, Tell everybody, like, what's the name of the church? Where is it? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Emmanuel Baptist Church, that's Emmanuel with an I, not an E. <laughs> uh, we are uh, right in the midtown area of Sacramento, about nine or 10 blocks from the state capital. So, we're an urban ministry context, uh, Brian. And uh, yeah, right in the, the heart of the state capital of what, the biggest state in the Union. Mm. And w can you kind of just give us a, a picture of? Like, just give us a picture of how, I mean, how many people were at the church when you got there and how, how many people were there now at 20 yeah. years later? I would say that when I got, I think there was about 110 people that were involved in calling me. I think our membership's now about 210, 220 okay. maybe. Uh, we get anything between 300, 350 on the Lord's Day. We've gone ebbed and flowed through the COVID thing. We've lost some, you know, recently we've had some challenges. Uh but there's a lot of new people coming. We just brought 14 members in a, f a few months back. We've got a new members class starting, Brian. So that's our general. Our church can hold about 400 people. Okay. I don't want to get any bigger than that if we ever did get close to that. We need to plant churches and yeah. we need to train men. That's my, I've got no desire to be uh, a mega church pastor or anything like that. That's yeah. not, I would lose touch with my people if that happened. And this is a loaded question, but I'm just going to ask it this way. You can pick whatever you want to say. Like in your 20 years at the church, Maybe come up with, share with us one or two things that have been most encouraging, how you've seen the Lord work, and then maybe one or two things that have been particularly hard and painful in your 20 years. And there's probably a lot to choose from, but, but think joy, a couple of joys and a couple of real sorrows from your ministry there. I think joys, I would definitely say this, that our people, our, our congregation has been largely a very loving congregation, uh, a very forbearing congregation. I'm very thankful, Brian, that there is a culture and climate in our church of one of, of love. And, and we really stress that. We really emphasize that. Uh, having said that, one of the great disappointments is that not everybody in your congregation actually gets it. And so as a result, that love is not always manifest. Um, in terms of highlights... Um, certainly, I would say uh, 
the impact that we've had uh, in the city, I think, as as a light for our pastors fraternal that we started. Uh, We've had that for 16 or 17 years. We have really good relationships with a lot of different, uh, what I would just call uh, doctrines of grace, gospel men in their churches, different polity from us, but solid brothers. We love them. We meet together regularly. We pray together. And out of that has evolved the Sacramental Gospel Conference, which we have once a year. We host it because we're in the city centre, but it's not just us. It's sponsored by other churches. I think that's been one of the great blessings and highlights. And I'm very thankful for that spirit of Catholicity that we enjoy in the city with a lot of good brothers. um, And we hope to keep cultivating and developing that. I think in terms of discouragements, well, you've always got church discipline issues. We've we've trained some men who have not turned out to be what we hoped they would be. Uh, That's going to happen. You have to be prepared in training men for ministry that you'll have some successes and you'll have some disappointments. And we've had some successes. I think of my brother Jeremy Twombly, who's up in Reading, pastoring under the shadow of Bethel and all of that. Um, and I think of my brother Brett Wagner, who just went to Veritas up in uh, 20 miles north of us. And yet we've had other guys, don't need to name them, but the reality is they haven't turned out the way that we would have liked them to turn out in terms of ministry. So that's, for me personally, because I invest in men, when men turn out not to be what you hoped they would be, I personally, especially when you've treated them like sons, uh, that's been heartbreaking. And, and I still struggle with that, Brian, quite honestly. But the Lord gives grace, but that's been that's been challenging for me. It still is. But you, you can't draw back. you got to keep going. you got to keep training men. It's not about me. I mean, I'm looking to what the Lord might have for me to be, you know, at the end of my ministry. And I'm thinking, but the ministry of the gospel in our church, that's what matters. I'm just a name on a list with dates. That's I'm the servant. It's Christ's work that's the most important issue. Well, I want to change gears here a little bit with a couple of things. Uh, one thing I'd like to ask you about, you, there's, a, there's a saying somebody came up with some years ago I heard and said, if you want to know what the ocean is like, don't ask a fish. Uh, and so sometimes you need an outsider's perspective. Um, you saw the American church from the outside uh, for some years and then made the big decision to, to actually come. You've been here for twenty some years. What have you? What do you see as strengths, weaknesses? Maybe what have you seen change? If you if you do believe it has from the time you arrived to the to where you are right now. Yeah, that's a great question, Jim. And I obviously do reflect on that because obviously making the decision I made, it's kind of like I've lived two lives. I've lived in Europe and I've lived in America, and I kind of feel like I'm three citizenships, you know, British citizenship, American citizenship, and heavenly citizenship. Um, Change, yes, there's no doubt. Um, I think that, uh, you know, someone said once that, you know, when it came to the Christian faith, uh, it was turned into a philosophy by some, it was turned into a religion by others. The Americans have turned it into a business. Hmm. That troubles me for for sure. Um, I do think that Americans are really generous, and I love Americans, and I'm blessed God for Americans. We are the wealthiest people materially in the world. I don't think Americans grasp how rich they really are, but we are, and I include myself in that. I'm now an American citizen. Um, I think that the church is extremely wealthy. I mean, was there ever a time in the history of the church where so much literature is available to learn, and yet the American church just seems to love to fight and divide and devour. And 
have one-upmanship and the lack of Catholicity is quite alarming to me. Now, I don't know whether that's as a result, Jim, honestly, as many of us came into Christianity through fundamentalism, we tend to have a fundamentalist brain and we haven't quite shed it and we haven't grasped what it means to be truly Catholic as Christians. I don't know. There's a lot of debate about that going on right now. Um, I do see encouragement that there's retrieval taking place, recovery taking place regarding orthodoxy, Catholic orthodoxy. I just finished studies at the Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, which was wonderful. Amongst my pedo-baptist brothers as a Baptist, they treated me like royalty, and I cannot commend them enough. Um, and, I, and I learned a lot of things, Jim, that I would say I had some dissonance in my own mind about over the years um, and a need for clarity that has really clarified for me some of the issues that the American church is really facing. And I think we're seeing that with uh, a, a loss of historical orthodoxy. Now there's a bit, there's a recovery coming. It certainly didn't exist in the 90s the way now it does. Mm. Um, and I bless God for that. But there's a resistance to it that is also prevalent that we see um, because men think that what they knew in the 90s hasn't changed at all and they don't need to change. Well, with all due respect, I'm glad I'm not still the same as I was in the 90s at a certain level. I'm glad that I've developed my understanding of who God is and who Christ is and what the church is and what ministry is. Um, and certainly we need to be men who are humble, men who are always learning, men who are willing to own where we got it wrong, men who are willing to you know, develop uh, when things are discovered that we've held something that maybe wasn't as accurate. I think that's encouraging to me, but I think it's also the battlefield right now. Where it will go in the next 20 years is going to be interesting. Um, I'm going to, Lord willing, be kind of retiring. Although I pray for the years of Caleb and the strength of Caleb, I don't know if I'll get that. Mm-hmm. Rob, would you tell us, uh, one of the things we appreciate, Jim and I both appreciate about you is your, your heart to want to mentor pastors and train up men for the ministry. Would you speak a little bit about how do you approach that? What kind of things are you thinking about when you're trying to train a young man to be a pastor? What are you trying to teach him? What are you emphasizing him? How are you trying to prepare him? Yeah, I've gone through a fair bit of uh, reflection on that, Brian, in the last couple of years for sure. Um, I've had to really deal with my own heart regarding becoming cynical and skeptical a little bit about that. I think I'm in a better place now than I maybe was a year ago, but uh, just some of the disappointments that I've had to address. But I would certainly say this. Uh, we have a young man in our church. Actually, he's six foot five. He's a former Marine and he's a great bodyguard. Um, and uh, he's got a heart for ministry. And my attitude is this. I'm looking for young, I'm looking for men who will just simply do whatever needs to be done initially in the church. So if I see them picking up chairs, putting out tables, serving Christ, I realize they've got a heart for the church. I'm also going to look to see, are they there to pray for the church? Because ultimately, the work of prayer is the hard work. All of us who are pastors know if we're going to be honest about our lives, what's the weakest area of our lives? It's the work of prayer. Studying the Bible, putting your sermon together, reading your books, that's a lot easier than get on your knees and plead with God. Um, so the work of prayer is very important to me, Brian. I'm watching to see what what is the Spirit of God doing in the heart of a man to bring him to a place of dependence on God. And it's manifest not by duty, though duty matters, but by a heart to do that 
discipline of prayer when he gathers with other brothers. So I'm going to look at that as well. Then we've got a we've got a structured uh, intern program. We stole some of it from Mark Dever, who has been one of my friends over the years. We've stolen it from other reformed contexts. Um, you know, Don Whitney's book, Spiritual Disciplines. I mean, we, we're, we're eclectic at that level. I think what I've also realized is, though, that there is really no substitute for men for full-time ministry. There's no substitute for a thorough theological education. So we're going to look at how can we facilitate that, whether it's part-time, whether it's full-time, how's that going to work in terms of his life. And then once he's gone through all of those things, we'd be in a position to consider laying hands on a brother and setting him apart for ministry. I think we probably need to wrap up here shortly, Robert. It would be sad for your family if they listen to this, if you don't get to mention them all. So okay. tell us about your children, and, okay. uh, and then uh, you've had the, the a joy, you're experiencing a joy that I've gotten to experience a couple of times now. But Yeah, uh, sure, absolutely, Jim. Thank you. Well, my, my, my greatest joy, of course, is my dear wife, Elaine. Uh, she is my right arm and my left arm and my rock, and I bless God for her. We've been married 31 years. Um, she puts up with a lot, let me tell you, um, but she really is solid, and, and, and she's very steady, and she's my best critic, uh, and she loves me the most, no doubt, but uh, my wife, obviously, is my, my best uh, friend as well. And then I've got three daughters, just like you, Jim, you know, uh, Lois Joy, my oldest, uh, Esther Grace, and then Deborah Faith. Uh, Lois Joy has gone through some difficult times recently, uh, sadly, and her marriage is broken down, but she does have a little boy called Isaac. You may see him on my Facebook post. Isaac Mondays are one of my favorite days. My three-and-a-half-year-old grandson is the apple of my eye, and uh, we are great friends, and uh, I'm just really looking forward to getting home to seeing him. Um, he's been such a blessing in our home in the midst of some really deep uh, sorrow and sadness. Lois's faith is holding in the Lord, and I'm very thankful for that. She's lo looking to Christ. The church will be wonderful to give us support in, in difficult days. That's a whole other podcast. But uh, Esther Grace works for Chick-fil-A in Burbank. She's a, she's a go-getter. She's single at the moment. Uh, she's 26 uh, and loves what she does for the Lord there. Uh, Deborah is married to Ty. They live up in Vancouver, Washington, and she also is a management and Chick-fil-A, and they're doing well. We're very thankful Ty coaches basketball at the Christian school in Vancouver. Now, my son Andrew uh, is at home. Uh, he just uh, called me to tell me my car is broken down um, because he was driving it to get a burger, um, but I'm, as long as he's okay, I'm fine. He just graduated from Sac State with his history degree uh, and Arabic studies, and uh, he's a delight, um, not yet in the Lord, but a delightful boy, and I love him very much. All, all three of us have three daughters That's right. and one son. So we right. did it backwards. Robert and I did it the right way. <laughs> the first, the There's a clear blessing from the Lord, though, in that formula for Amen. some reason. You know? so, Rob, one final question I'm asking. We, we want to take a minute and pray for you. Uh, the first is, or the just last question is, pastor's listening to this. You know, he's in, he's in the grind. He's plodding away. Uh, he's listening to you who's been in the ministry for, you know, 30-plus years, same church 20 years. You know, what kind of counsel or advice do you give him to help him to keep his hand to the plow and keep right. pressing on? Well, in my darkest days in Northern Ireland, Brian, when, you know, because I was committed to the confession and uh, I was misunderstood and I made mistakes, of course, too, I, I was, it was, it was a lonely path for a while. And one of the great passages the Lord used in my life, and I still go back to it, was when David was at Ziklag 
and everything was against him, and his back was against the wall, and he didn't know if he was even going to live or die. And there's a phrase there in, in 1 Samuel, I, I, I really live by this, David encouraged himself in the Lord. Mm-hmm. And the bottom line is that, taking it from First Timothy as well, uh, your life with God, your walk with God, is the lifeblood of your ministry. That's, you know, there's, no, there's no separation. And uh, I would encourage any pastor who's finding it hard, get time, maybe come to your retreat place, Brian, get your Bible open, get some good old men that are dead theological books, or or even modern men that understand the old men to help you and and take a few of those books and, and, and spend time seeking God, studying who God is, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Spend time meditating on who Christ is, that you might encourage yourself in the Lord. And and, and once, once that life of understanding who God is and what God's purpose is in Christ really grips the soul, you'll face whatever hardship comes, mm. whatever difficulty there is. Yeah. Uh, there's no secret formula. We need God. We need the work of the Spirit. We need the Word of the Lord. Uh, encourage yourself in the Lord. And then seek to get some good friends. Uh, I just preached this in Jim's church. It's not the quantity of your friends that matter. Yeah. It's the quality of your friends. Find a few brothers that you can really open up with and speak to, uh, get help from, who are going to be for you, uh, and say maybe some of the harder things you need to hear as well as the, the, the other things, and know you're not alone. Uh, there is help. There is support. One of your, your ministry here is a wonderful example of that, Brian, you and Jim, um, and, and get some support to encourage yourself in the Lord. That's great. And the Lord will give grace. Rob, thanks for being with us. We love you, and we're grateful for your ministry, and thanks for taking some time to talk with us. Would you maybe share two ways listeners can pray for you? And then I'm going to ask Jim to pray for those things. So maybe two specific yeah. things. Pray for us as we reach the city of Sacramento. We just got 66,000 Afghans arrive in the city. All of them are Muslim. Uh, we know of only about 10 of them who might be Christians. We're praying for God to guide us to reach our city with the gospel. I have various avenues that I'm involved in there. So pray for our church, that our heart and our mind and our, our focus would be on bringing the gospel to our city. That would be one, that God would spend his spirit to this capital of California. And who knows, wouldn't it be interesting if another, if a great awakening took place in America and it started in a place that most Americans don't believe it can happen, yeah. Sacramento. That would be one. And two, just pray for my family and my wife and I. Pray for my daughter, my son, uh, the families in our church, the pastor's families in our church. You know, they're all at different stages. Not all of the young, uh, the children of our pastors are saved. Uh, some of them are. Just pray for our unity uh, and for our, our zeal uh, and for our, you know, our, our love for one another, that it would continue to grow and abound for the glory of Christ and the good of the church. Yeah. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your sustaining and saving grace. Our Father, we do pray for Robert and the other uh, elders and the members of the church there uh, in Sacramento that they, along with many other churches in that area, would see a field right under, white under harvest and, Lord, uh, be bold and loving and sacrificial and reaching not only the people that have been there for years that are in such desperate need of the truth, but these Afghanis who have gone through such trauma and, Lord, that they would find help and hope 
uh, in the eternal one who came to save uh, the lost. Our Father, we do uh, thank you again for your blessing upon Robert and Elaine through the years. Thank you for sustaining Lois and the sorrows that she's endured. And Father, uh, we do pray that you'd come alongside her and Isaac and the loss of his father in this way. Father, thank you for uh, the children that are following you and pray your blessing upon Esther and Deborah. And then, Lord, do pray that we would hear good news of your saving work in Andrew's life. And Father, we do uh, ask for the others there uh, who uh, labor alongside Robert now and those being trained who will, may one day serve the church. Lord, that your blessing would rest upon uh, these men, upon their homes, mm. and, uh, and that your glory will shine in the hearts of their children, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.